Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Hi, thanks for being here. I think what we're going to start to unpack is tonight is very important. So we'll get it up online and on stream and uh, available to people. Um, just a couple of things um, as we start. One is we send our prayers to Barbara, who's still recovering and um, just pray that everything will work itself out for what our arrangements need to be for the for the future so um, just keep her in your prayers and thanks for those who are uh, visiting and just keeping tabs with her um, also obviously you know there's not masses of you here tonight from the main congregation but uh, just bear in mind now that that the office will function differently seem as seen as Amy finished on uh, on Friday so um, you know check in with us we're <coughs> we're working on that and we'll uh, We'll let you know how all that goes. Um, also, I think it's worth, you know, just, just saying, putting on record how much I appreciate Phil uh, Sager and, and, and uh, you know, Kev's, Kev's in the video booth tonight. Um, you know, people who, who, you know, do things for us that, that fly under the radar and and uh, are not on staff and don't get paid and and you know it's no small job what what Phil and the video guys do it's a it's a huge task so the faithfulness is much appreciated Phil uh, not unnoticed and and um, and Kev and uh, you know many of you will will never see some of the guys that come in here cleaning like Liz and Dave and you know under the radar they come and go you never see them but but we all benefit from that so I appreciate that and Eunice and you guys who all uh, John, who um, sacrificially help us, and you know the guys who help with the dance, all that stuff. So we we thank you, and we're very blessed. So um, want to open up the conversation about going beyond Jesus. I think I think this is a critical understanding to glean um, as we repurpose ourselves in what we're doing. Chris and I had a little conversation this week because we were talking about how we spent a lot of time trying to deconstruct um, not just where we were uh, and what we believe, but how we do things. And that really the, the opposite to that is not reconstructing because reconstructing would simply be erecting another structure. So we don't want to fall into the trap of saying we have to restructure ourselves. What, what I believe the right term is, is to repurpose ourselves. So having, having deconstructed so many things, we need to repurpose ourselves. And of course, you know, the repurpose is about catching the why, the positive why, the, the important why of, uh, of the journey that we're on so that then we build the how uh, around all of that. So I want to hit you up with something from the off. Um, it, and it's in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read it from the NIV. Um, but the NIV actually, actually titles this, The Supremacy of Christ. 
Um, there's a lot of trails we could follow tonight. I, 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 I must not, and I, I cannot follow the trails. You know, I've said to Chris, please listen and see what are the things we need to continue and carry on, because we'll probably need to carry this conversation on next week. Um, so I'm going to try and give you some kind of framework for understanding where we're coming from with this that I think is so critical. So this, this is titled in the NIV, The Supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is a description of, of Christ. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That's all things, all things. Anything that's a thing, which is most of the things that we can identify as thing, is part of all things. So if this is correct, all things were created by him and for him. So in everything there is a function that is connected to an understanding of, of the Christ. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God... And were enemies in your minds. Now catch that, Chris has noted this before. The reason you were alienated is not because you were enemies of God. You were only enemies in your own mind. And once you accept what your mind is telling you about your state with God, you will be alienated from God simply because you have become an enemy in your own mind. Not in God's mind, right? In your own mind. Because of your evil behaviour. Again, I'm not going to chase that trail. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So we have a Christ who was before all things, which means nothing was a thing when he was. And yet we also have Christ's physical body which is a thing, and a tangible thing, in space and time. So if all of this is true, then I propose to you up front that Christ is the sacred raw material which has existed from all eternity. If everything came from him, everything was made by him, and everything was made for him, he is the existent raw material from which everything was made. Christ is that raw material. Now, I know you won't fully understand this yet, but I want to drop it in your heart as we begin to unfold it. Because if he is in all things, and by whom all things exist, then he is the sacred raw material which has existed from all eternity. 
So perhaps we could even argue that Christ is just another word for everything. Because if everything exists by him and for him, then Christ is a word for everything. Now, that should blow your mind because when we think about everything and wonder how can that be Christ, but we have to realise that the thing wouldn't be a thing if it were not for Christ. So we don't start from this existential thing of we're just nothingness and along comes God. Or we're nothingness and along comes Jesus. Our source of existence is Christ. You, me, every person in this city, every person in the world, every tree from which this wood came, every stone from which this this, this, this balcony was built. Everything came for him, was created by him. So, so, so Christ is another word for everything. Now, now just hold that, because we're not going to fully explain that yet, but it's quite mind-blowing, isn't it? But that has to be true if Colossians 1 is true. So, what does all this mean? Does it matter? Is there any importance, any relevance? I, I think there is. So let's, let's clarify a few things right from the beginning. Christ was not the second name of Jesus. Now, I know that most of you know that, but the way that we talk, you would think that Christ was no more significant than being the other half of the name of Jesus. Now, I appreciate that to some degree, Scripture doesn't help us with that because we have these terms, Jesus. We have the term Christ. We have Jesus Christ. We have Christ Jesus. We have Christ the Lord. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. So I appreciate that, that, that wending your way through is a bit like, the question is, what, how are these words connecting with the thing at the core, which is not Jesus, the thing at the core is Christ? Because it does not say that all these things existed because of Jesus. It says they were there because of Christ. So, Christ was not the second name of Jesus. In fact, Christ is not a name. So, to say we name him Christ would actually, in essence, not really be correct because Christ is not a name. Any more than we taught the other week, I am is not a name. I am is a description of the nature of the being, the function of the being. So when, we, when he is I am, nobody comes to God really and has said, uh, I am, I pray to you. We always come the Father, we come Jehovah in, in, in rigid, rigid um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, orthodoxy. We, we would come with the names, but, but I propose to you, as, as I said the other Sunday, that that there is a problem with the naming of God because once you name God, something happens to that God, which I'll talk about in a moment. So I want you to understand that, that Christ is not a name. Christ is the description of a state of being. So Christ is in the context of Jesus as I am is in the context of Yahweh. So, so but because of a religious progression, 
we transition from I am to the name Yahweh, but in many ways we now have to transition from the name Jesus, which is the name, to the Christ. Now, let, let me say another little thing um, about that. Um, Jesus was absolutely fully Christ. So there's no question, was Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. But was Christ only Jesus? And the answer is no. Because there was no Jesus until 2,000 years ago when he was born of the Virgin Mary and you will call his name Jesus. Why will you call his name Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. What does the name Jesus mean? The name Jesus means he who saves. So the function of the physical manifestation of the Christ in the form of Jesus was to function as one who saves, he who saves. Okay. So that's part of the process, but... But it would be wrong to say that, 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 that Jesus is fully Christ, but Christ is just Jesus. I take you back to where we're in the beginning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. So therefore he had to be more than Jesus, because Jesus only turned up 2,000 years ago. Do you get that? And there's nothing in Scripture that says that Jesus was existent as Jesus before he was born of the Virgin. Now you can say, but he talks about the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. That's, that's, not, that, that's referring to Jesus, but it's referring to a function of Jesus that Jesus came to fulfil. If you want to be accurate, John says in chapter 1, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Greek for that is Logos. It means the whole wisdom that was spoken. In the beginning was the, the wisdom that was there. The, it was with God, it was God. Well, well, guess what? Who else it says was in the beginning? Without whom nothing was made that has been made. The Christ. So Christ was in all of that in the beginning before anything else existed. And all things exist because of him, through him and by him. So I propose to you that finding Jesus is wonderful, but finding Christ is better. And that mostly we have been taught to find Jesus, but we have not been taught to find Christ. Now why did we... Why were we taught to find Jesus? Because when we believe that we were alienated from God, we believe it's because of God's mind. Because we were enemies in God's mind, that God looked at us and thought, you ungrateful, sad, pitiful things. But Paul says, no, we were enemies in our own minds, not in God's mind. So the problem is, we created the need that we have for Jesus to be who we have made him to be in the way that we have understood him because we couldn't see beyond Jesus to the Christ because all we could think about was we need salvation, we need to be saved, not that we need to become one absorbed in the Christ who was before all things and in whom we live and move and have our being. So, if Jesus was absolutely fully Christ but Christ is more than Jesus, then 
then what other evidence we ha- do we have? We have lots, actually. Paul, the Apostle Paul, endorses the universal transcendent reality of Christ apart from Jesus. And um, I can't go through with you all the different separate scriptures, and, and nor would you be particularly that interested, um, or it wouldn't make for a good night. So I'll just pick out what will help you. Because there is a proposition that Paul makes that proves that Christ did not emerge on the scene with the birth of Jesus. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. I don't, did I give you this one, Phil? No, I missed that one, sorry. I'll let Phil find it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul's talking about the journey, journeying of the children of Israel after their captivity in Egypt to become a people who have inherited a promise. And so he writes these words, For I I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, and sisters, and and mothers and fathers, and dogs and cats, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, I suppose our foremothers as well, that all our forefathers were all under the cloud, And they all pass through the sea. Now, are you familiar with what he's talking about there when the children of Israel come out of Egypt and the story says the Red Sea was parted and God protected them with a cloud. So they went through the dry ground in the parting of the Red Sea um, uh, uh, under the cloud and passing through the water, a kind of baptism. So it says they were all baptised, water all around them, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now listen to this. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Now remember we're talking about the children of Israel now back 2,000 years before Christ almost, between 1,000 and 2,000 years before Christ. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was what? So Christ was with the children of Israel in their journey across the wilderness, and they were drinking life from that rock because they were things. And all things were created by him and for him, and he is in all things. So these things experienced Christ almost 2,000 years before Jesus ever turned up. Now this is, just, this is just one example and how, you know, if you want to scripturally wrestle with this, Paul endorses this conversation that we're having. He's trying to get through to us because he wrote the thing about, about the supremacy of Christ. He wrote this about Christ being with them. Therefore, Christ has been at work from before time ever began, but it's more than that, because if we think of that, we think Christ is somewhere and we are here. The reality of it is that we are in Christ and Christ is in us and Christ is in this. All things... They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, now here's the problem. The Jews confused the Christ who is universally transcendent with the tribal Messiah. So along comes 
Jesus who becomes the Christ, who is universally transcendent. Now, I know that's, that's a term I'm just bringing to you. Universally transcendent mean, means that it fills everything. Universe is the way we would talk about that, although obviously we have a solar system that goes beyond. And transcendent means that it is not bound by the physical functioning of natural life and process. So Christ is within that, but outside that, and beyond that, and more than that. But the problem is, the, the Jews confused the Christ, who is universally transcendent, with the tribal Messiah. Because they wanted him to be their Messiah, not the Christ of God. So if you study scripture, you will find there is much confusion, particularly in, in, in traditional thinking, almost that Christ and Messiah are so synonymous that when the Bible talks about Christ, it was talking about the Messiah. Well, there are many problems with that. One is, for example, that if Paul is correct what he said, then Messiah had already come in the wilderness and he looked like a rock. So if we're going to make him what we want him to be, we have to worship the rock from which water comes. So, so we would now be having rock church to worship the rock from whom the water flows. So what I'm trying to get through to you is in our desperate need to understand the Christ, we, we have this tendency to want to tribalize the one who is universally transcendent. We want to make him our Jesus. So, so the Bible nowhere talks about a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Nowhere. There's no such a thing in the Bible. But most of us in here grew up with you need a personal relationship with God through Jesus. So salvation was a personal relationship with, with Jesus. But the Bible actually never talks about that. I, I could argue that's because you could never be more personal than what already existed when you get a revelation of who the Christ is and where the Christ exists. You can't get more personal than that. And once we stop being enemies in our own minds and start learning to be friends with ourselves because we are a thing, and if we are a thing... We were created by him and for him and through him and therefore we actually have a good place before the divine. Not a bad place, a good place. Then we can move ourselves to, to get some perception of the Christ. Now, now the, the Jews trying to convert, con, con, confuse Christ with the tribal Messiah which of course caused a lot of the conflict because Jesus was always trying to reveal Christ to them. He wasn't trying to reveal Jesus to them. He was trying to reveal Christ to them. He didn't need to reveal Jesus to them. They already understood principles of salvation, he who saves, because even Jesus' name is just a derivative of, a derivative of Joshua. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. So, so they, they were not unfamiliar with the context of a Jesus. What they could only understand is to tribalize that, make him their personal saviour, and not understand the universal transcendental uh, uh, um, image that he was trying to bring them into from that narrow understanding. Now, again, was Jesus the one who saves? Yes. Does Jesus save us? Yes, he does. But that's his function as Jesus. That's not his function as Christ. 
That's his function as Jesus. So the question is, if that's what he does as Jesus, what does he do as Christ? You know, we were not very well-educated sexually when we were growing up, particularly as church kids. And also, you know, we, we, we are kind of coming out of generations that didn't talk about that stuff. You know, some of you know what I talk about. I just didn't talk about that. You know, women's problems. Women, so even women's problems, that was the joke, you know. Women's problems. It's always whispered like, well, just, you know, what's, you know, we get it. Just So I remember Chris telling me, she correct me if I'm wrong here, once, once saying to her mum, I know, I know that you're my mum, but why is he my dad? Yeah, I was 35 when I said that. Yeah, she was, <laughs> it was, it, she was a bit young. It was just before we had our kids and then we kind of figured it, we, we figured it out then. And so sincerely in her mind as a kid growing up, it's like, I get it, mums have babies, but where, where do dads fit in all of this? Now we have the same problem cognitively we all know where Jesus fits in this, but we don't know where Christ fits in it. And so we ask, you know, what did Jesus come to do? But a bigger question is, what did Christ come to do? And when did Christ come to do it? And when was Christ doing what Christ does? So, so we have lacked the revelation of the fullness of the one who... Paul talks about in Colossians 1, who is before all things, and when you understand how that works, you realise you, you, you've entered into a whole different field of operation than, than we're sinners and we don't deserve anything, but thank God Jesus saved us. You, you come into a dimension, a universal dimension, that is very special. And I believe will make us much more effective when we understand that. So in the same way that the Jews confused Christ with the Messiah, in the Old Testament they confused I am with Yahweh. So they didn't live in the reality of the I am. They began to try to live in the reality of a God who they could name, who they could structure, who they actually could in some ways control, who they could who they could promote, but didn't catch the real revelation. Now, now, I mentioned this before the other Sunday, they made it tribal unto some rather than always unto all. Now, now it's beyond me now. One time it was, and one time I would have been on the flip side of the fence. But I would have to say, after all my years of experience um, and ministry and being a minister that we took the gospel and we have made it tribal to some. So, so you have to be in the tribe, this is the tribe, and this is how you join the tribe, and when you've joined the tribe and you're in our tribe, anybody who's not in our tribe is an outsider. Anybody who's not in our tribe is a sinner. Anybody who's not in our tribe uh, is, is lost. So we have, we have terminologies which, which clearly make it make it stated that we have a tribe and we're in our tribe and this is our tribe and and so we made it tribal into some just like Israel did if you're not an Israelite you're not in the tribe therefore our God is not your God 
And so, as we said on Sunday, in the name of that God, we'll come and take your land. We'll come and steal it from you. And many atrocities have been done because of this lack of understanding that it was never meant to be tribal and to some. So, in many ways, we, and this, you know, I can't believe I'm hearing myself saying this, but, but we created a problem by, quote, taking the gospel to the, to the heathen nations. Now, I could put a case to say it was necessary and it's good, and yeah, we, we need to take Christ to people. But on the other hand, as, as, the saying, as the saying goes, before the Christians came, we had the land and they had Bibles. When the Christians left, we had Bibles and they had the land. And unfortunately, that was a model that was perpetrated in the name of God in ancient Israel history that said when we came in, they had the land, but now we have the land and they're out. So, so we have grown up with, a, with a, a tribal and to some perspective of the gospel, which was then limited because we only really had a revelation of Jesus. And if Jesus came to save us, Jesus needs to save them. All of which has truth within it, but we missed the greater revelation of the Christ because it's not tribal and to some, it's always and to all. So for me, my whole heart has changed because now it's you haven't got this and you need it. It's you have got this and you need to recognise it. And if I can help you to understand the fullness of the Christ that flows, we, we, can, we can release that in a way that lets you be one with all things. So the problem is there's always been a seeking to constrain, restrain, hijack and tribalise the revelation of the one who transcends all things. And Christianity, sadly, has been no different. I mean, you know, I could even, I could even you know, do a bit of picking the bones there and say, you know, even down to, it's not just Christian, non-Christian, but it's Baptist, Pentecostal, it's, it's, it's Methodist, Presbyterian, you know, it's Congregationalist, you know, Reformed theology versus, versus Catholic theology versus Pentecostal theology versus Protestant theology. So even within our own ranks, that same thinking has permeated our thinking. It's got within us so that, so that we find it hard to, to lose that. So we constrain, restrain, hijack and tribalise the revelation of the one who transcends all things. And I think that he still smiles on us is quite remarkable. Christianity has been no different. We, we've unduly focused people on Jesus and not Christ, is the point that I'm making. Because you can't be Jesus. Not, there's nothing in Scripture that says you can be Jesus. There was one Jesus. And he was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. But you can be Christ. Because Christ was not born of a virgin. Christ was before the virgin. Christ was in the work that put the seed that made Jesus come from the virgin. He was in the beginning. Everything was made by him and for him. We are existing because of him. So you can't be Jesus, but we've been trying to be Jesus. And save somebody... Rather than being Christ, who brings the universal context of the whole of the divine into a person's life and brings light. 
It's an interesting little thing in that context that Chris and I read um, in Richard Raw's new book. And I thought, fascinating, how we miss these things. Nobody stares at the light. What you do is you live by what the light allows you to see. But I was raised to stare at the light. Oh, you got to, staring at Jesus, staring at the Father, you know, stare at the light. Well, all that you get from staring at the light is spots in front of your eyes. And then you can't see the world as the world really is. And, and I walk around most of my life with spots in front of my eyes from staring at the light. And still most evangelical charismatic culture is all stare at the light, stare at the light. Which is dumb because what you do is you say, what is the light showing? Let's live by the light, not stare at the light. Do you understand what I'm saying? So sadly, we've unduly focused people on Jesus and not Christ. Doesn't mean we shouldn't focus on Jesus, but we've unduly focused on that, not the Christ. You can't be Jesus, but you can be the Christ. And I propose to you that was always the purpose. So here's a very simple thing. Do we call it Christianity or Jesusianity? It's a simple little thing, but it's very powerful. Why is this not called Jesusianity? Why is it called Christianity? Because the objective of, was always that we understand the Christ in us, right? That's the focus for our Christianity. So let me show you something that I think is remarkable. Um, I've been aware of this for a long time. It's come even more to light as, we, as we're on this pursuance of repurposing ourselves in an understanding of Christ. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy. Um, as with most things in Scripture, if you were to analyse this historically, um, you would be able to pick holes in it. Because the Bible never set out to be a historical record about anything. It always had a message that was more than that and bigger than that. And, and um, so, you know, if, if you understand the construct of scripture and Hebrew thinking, only that which matters counts. So if it doesn't matter, you don't count it. So there's some counting in the Bible and you think that's wrong. Well, that's because when it didn't matter, it didn't count. Because in the Hebrew mind, time was measured not by ticks of the clock, but by significance. So if it was significant, it counts. If it's not significant, it doesn't count. Now, I think there's a great lesson in that ancient Hebrew thinking there because we make everything matter. Instead of saying, is that significant in the bigger picture of all that's going on? If it isn't, it doesn't matter and I don't have to count it because it doesn't count. So I simply say that just in, if any of you were to pursue the historical context of this, it's pretty close but you might say, oh, well, problem with this, this, and this. But that's not the point, because that was never the point of Matthew writing this genealogy of Jesus. So there's two genealogies. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew starts at Abraham and goes all the way through forwards. And uh, in, in Luke, Luke starts the other way. He starts with 
Jesus and goes all the way back to he goes all the way back to Adam. Um, well, actually, back to God, but you know that that's that's not significant for us today. So let me read you what Matthew put. I'm going to read verse 17 before I go back to the beginning. In Matthew 1 verse 17, it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, you might say, well, so it's a bunch of names. What, you know, so what? What's the significance? Well, I hope to show you a little bit of the significance if you add 14 to 14, that's 28. And if you add another 14 to 28, that's 42. So, so in total, we have 42 generations. So when we go back to verse 1, which we're not going to read, you, you can put that other slide up now, Phil, of the names. Here's how verse 1 starts in Matthew 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So remember... We've got 42 generations mentioned. So, let's look at the math. So, so if we start on the left at Abraham and count down, we go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Are we agreed up to David? Okay, now let's, so Solomon's number 15. So let's do Solomon, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. Are we agreed down to Jeconiah? Okay, so we've got 28, let's go to our next column. 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, and we've come to Jesus. So if there's 42 generations, which he clearly said, who's the, four, who's the 42nd name? So hang on a minute. So, so he has divided Jesus from the Christ. Now let's take another jump to show you something else. This is why I say I find this fascinating. In Numbers 33, it explains the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So Numbers 33 actually tells you all the places that they camped at on their journey from Egypt to the land of promise, the land of Canaan as it was to them physically. So, let's do the same thing again. Numbers 33 verse 5 says, The Israelites left Ramesses and camped at. So, if you're reading this in Numbers 33, it would say, And they left there and they camped at. And they left there and they camped at. So, I've, I've gotten rid of the camped at bits. So, we've just got the name. So, let's do the same thing again. So, start, starting at Sukkoth. One, shut up you. What a crowd. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Are we agreed? Down to Rithma. Yeah. 
So let's go from 15 on the next column. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 at the wonderful hall Haggidgad. Try saying that. This is where Game of Thrones turned up in the scriptures and... uh, of course, the Norsemen have already had an impact on Hebrew thinking very evidently there. So we've got to 28 at Hor Hagigagen. Gad. Oh, forget it. Right. So we're on 28. We're going to the next column at the top. 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41 to the plains of Moab. You say, but what's the significance of the plains of Moab? The plains of Moab is where they camped at the River Jordan and could see Jericho on the other side of the river. So the the, the 41st camp was one step from where they were supposed to be. It was one step from where this whole story was leading them to be. It wasn't a place where you should do anything more than camp because the next step you were supposed to live there, right? This was to be your land, the place that you lived. So how fascinating (coughs) that we have 41 generations to Jesus and 41 camps to the plains of Moab. So if we reverse engineer this and say, so the next step was moving to live in the place they were always supposed to be, and that's the 42nd camp is on the other side of the Jordan, then when we jump back to the other list, the Christ is where the story was always supposed to take us. It was always where we were supposed to end up and where we were supposed to be. We were supposed to live in an understanding of the Christ in the same way they were supposed to live in an understanding of the land of promise, which to them physically was called the land of Canaan. Have you seen this? Now I find that fascinating that these two scriptures written at different times by different authors, you would really have to have your buttons on and be a genius to make these two sums level up the way that they do because they are disconnected from each other seemingly, but spiritually they are like twins. Okay, If you get one, you'll get the other. So what's also interesting about these two lists is that there are two commonalities in these accounts in Matthew chapter 1 and Numbers 33. They match up numerically perfectly. So each of them has actually got 42 places. And the 42nd is the last one. And what's interesting is, you know the Bible talks about generations a lot. And yet the last generation mentioned in the Bible is what? The generation mentioned in Matthew 1, which is the 42nd generation, which is not the generation of Jesus, it's the generation of the Christ. So until we move from Jesus to the Christ, we've not arrived where we were supposed to be. And most of us and most of the church has got stuck at Jesus in the same way that the children of Israel got stuck at the River Jordan. 
You can see where you're supposed to be, but in order to get there, there's a problem. So the two commonalities, they match up numerically perfectly, and they both finish up at the River Jordan. So you might say, okay, I can, I can see with, with the Numbers 33 list how they finished up at the River Jordan, the plains of Moab, the River Jordan, Jericho, Canaan, okay? But how does this list finish up at the River Jordan? Well, when did Jesus become the Christ? It was when the heavens opened, the Father said, you're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. And it says, what, what, what descended on him in bodily form like a dove? The Holy Spirit. What do we call that? We call that the anointing. What does the word Christ mean? Anointed, Christus, the anointed one. So Jesus, the one who saves, but Christus, the anointed one. The anointed one is not a name. The anointed one is a state of being. But it says that, that, that after this, when Jesus was baptised in the Jordan, Acts 10.38 says, He then went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. It said he didn't perform a single miracle until after that experience at the Jordan when he was 30 years of age, when there was a visible understanding for our benefit of the anointing, the Christ thing. He was Christed, right? And from that moment, we could call him the Christ, which is interesting because so they both match up numerically perfectly. They both finish up at the Jordan. This is the place where Jesus was baptised and declared to be, have become the Christ. Now, I want you to get hold of that. He became Christ. Listen to this, it's interesting. Going back to Matthew 1 verse 16, notice what it says. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So born Jesus, called Christ. There is a transition because you would say, no, he was called Jesus. You will give him the name Jesus. But actually, in human minds, he was called Jesus by human birth. But the whole context of Scripture and the journey of this is until we learn to call him Christ, understand he was born Jesus but called Christ, we probably haven't made the transition to understand who he really is and what's going on here. So, I believe there is a place we all come to which marks a point of willing transition into the fullness of what we see is Christ. We all have our Jordan. We all come to a place where the revelation of Jesus is strong, where we can see where we need to be, but realise that between us and where we need to be, there has to be a transition. And there is a transition between Jesus and the Christ, just the same that there was a transition between the children of Israel on the desert side of the Jordan and the land side of the Jordan, where you're supposed to be. So... This whole thing of Christ is calling us to step in, to move into where we were always supposed to be. Or in our terms now, for the Israelites, it's where you were supposed to be. For us, it's who you are supposed to be. So the Jordan River, therefore, symbolises a place of transition that marks the distinction between the crossover from Jesus to Christ. 
And we need to pass through that. And that's part of what we're trying to get a hold of and do in all of its fullness. And uh, if we go through that place, we could, we could claim to say it will be like what Paul said about the Israelites, that we will drink from that rock and that rock is Christ because he accompanies us. So if we're going to leave the 41st camp, Numbers 33, and become all we are supposed to be, we have to make the transition. Now, whoever wrote the book of Joshua makes it even more intriguing. Because in the book of Joshua, we, we hear about when they come, when they are coming across the Jordan into, into their inheritance, Joshua talks about this. He talks about the, 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 the crossing. This is what he says, Joshua 3.16. The water from upstream stopped flowing. So this is his account. We were there, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town or a place called Adam. In the vicinity of Zarathan, it was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So for them to cross the Jordan, there had to be a cutting off of a flow that was the flow that represented what was separating them from being able to become who they were supposed to be. And in, in the wonderful wisdom of Scripture, this is why I cannot deny Scripture, when I say all the stuff about, you know, inerrant, infallible, and all the stuff I argue with about the bit that men wrote, I still have to say there is an absolutely beautiful, significant, incredible, inspired process that happens here that is so helpful if you will see it. So where do we perceive that our originations were? we perceive that they were in Adam. And so is it by chance then that when the water is stopped at the Jordan, which separates them from who they were always meant to be, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's the verse before, 16. Yeah, there, called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. There, thank you. Um, so, so the fact that, that he says that the flow of the water was stopped at a place called Adam was really symbolic to them to say that the beginnings of everything that started to go wrong for you where you lost your identity and understanding who you were and then become obsessed with the religious process or for us, you become obsessed with the work of Jesus. He said the water got stopped back there so that you could actually walk through on dry ground. So the thing being, if you're not willing to let what flows from Adam be stopped upstream, then the probability is you'll never go across the river. So you'll always stay in the desert and not in the promise. You'll always stay only in Jesus and never enter to the fullness of the one that is the Christ. So how do you stop that? Well, I said earlier, if you can even just grasp that we were enemies in our minds, not enemies in God's mind, the moment you allow that to stop is because somebody told you that what flowed down from Adam made you so unworthy that God's mind was changed about you. So it has to be stopped right back there to say, hang on a minute, God loved Adam, 
God was gracious to Adam, even in Adam being kept from the tree of life, was a work of grace and an act of grace, but God never left him. God never separated himself from him. God stayed involved, and by grace, he is then bringing us on a journey to say, you need to cut off the nonsense that flows down the river from Adam that is telling you you can't be who you were always supposed to be, and you can't get to where you were always supposed to go. So, the focus in Christianity has been on separation from God, which does not exist. Rather than separation from who we are supposed to be, which does exist. Did you get that? I'll say that again. The focus of Christianity has been on separation from God, which does not exist. Rather than separation from who we are supposed to be, which does exist. So the issue we're trying to resolve is getting into the Christ so we can fully embrace who we were supposed to be and get on with living the eternity that flows through that to us in all things. So, the issue in life is not what or who we were born, but what or who we become. Remember, he was born Jesus called Christ. The great message there is the issue of life is not who or what you were born, but it's what or who you become. That's that's the journey to what and who we become. And Christ is the centre of that realisation of what and who we become because we recognise who we truly are. So we only become who and what we are. Because that has never gone from us, because when you learned you are in the Christ, you are a thing. And if you're a thing, he's in the thing, because the thing can't exist without him. Now I'll give you one little example, and then, then, and then we're through. There's, there's a much quoted story, I've preached on it on many occasions, of a guy called Jabez way back in the book of Chronicles, and it's like, you know, in the middle of all these names, suddenly these, these couple of verses pop up about this guy called Jabez. And the story of Jabez is that his, his name reflected his mother's experience in his birth. So his name was Sorrowful, you know, because his mother bore him in great sorrow. She had a painful childbirth, and basically what it's implying is he, she blamed the child and the child knew that she blamed the child. Some of you have been there. We encounter people who walk with some sense of guilt and blame for what has been laid upon them and put on them. And sometimes we carry it subconsciously, not just consciously. But we can go with that shame. I've told you some of my history of, of being a maternal family because of the rejection of my, my great-grandmother um, and her pregnancy and the workhouse and all that stuff. Well, this Jabez, his, his name was Sorrowful, but, but it says he, he called upon the Lord and said, oh, that you would bless me and, and heal me and increase my boundaries and, 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 and that I would increase. And you can read the, the thing that I haven't written it down exactly. He says, and the Lord heard him. And, and basically, he goes from sorrowful to successful. It's just a two-verse little thing to say, this guy decided it's not who or what I was born, but it's who or what I become. 
Now, what I'm saying to you is that when we understand the revelation of the Christ, it frees us from who or what we think we were born into who and what we know we should become. And we, like I say, we become it because we are it. Okay? So I'm not going to push this much further. I've got two more things to say and then I'm done. Um, so I found this interesting verse in Matthew 27, verse 22. And um, it's, it's, it's within the story of Barabbas. Remember the story of Barabbas, who's the notorious um, rebel leader who's in prison when Jesus is taken prisoner. And it was customary at the, at the, at the Feast of Passover that that the governing authorities would release one prisoner, you know, give clemency to one prisoner. And, um, you know, this, it sounds this guy Barabbas was a bad, a, bad, a bad soul through and through, but, you know, again, what a wonderful, what a wonderful example of, of grace. I heard one guy preach, and it stuck with me. He said, this guy's down in solitary confinement in his prison, and all he can hear the mob shouting outside is, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And so you imagine if you, if you are condemned to death and you are down in the dungeon and all you can hear is the crowd saying, give us Barabbas, you think this is not going to end well today. What he didn't realise is that those cries that caused him to be full of fear were actually cries of grace because he was about to be completely freed. He was about to be exonerated. He was about to have his sentence commuted. He was about to be released back into life because of what was happening with Jesus became the one who they said, we don't want Jesus, give us Barabbas. But this is the interesting verse that's in there. So, so Pilate, Pilate asks, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. Now here's the sad thing. The real, full, undiluted, 100% revelation of the Christ when you speak it into the church and Pilate says, what do you want us to do with the Jesus who is called the Christ? They say, crucify him. Because they still want to take him and crucify him and keep him in that mode because they have refused to transition from Jesus, the one who saves, to the Christ, who is the one who is in all things. They've refused to go from that desert across into the place of who you were always supposed to be. They won't transition the Jordan because they won't let go of what they said about Adam. They won't let go of what they said about sin. They won't let go of what they said about God. And so they have to stay in that place because their only hope is the Saviour. I don't need a Saviour. I may have needed a Saviour. What I need is the Christ. I need the oneness with the one who is in all things. Now, that's not talking down the importance of Jesus the Saviour, but it's like how many times you need to be saved and how much do you need to be saved? And if somebody saved you, he saved you. And if it is finished, it's finished. So I don't need a Saviour because he said that stuff is finished. That was a moment that Jesus is also transferring and saying, I'm leaving behind this Jesus, this body, what I was in the flesh that is able to die because it's the last of Adam's race. And I am coming out of the tomb, not as Jesus, the man who died, but I'm coming out of the tomb as Christ Jesus. I still carry 
the truth of my reality in this world with me, but I have now become something more than that. I am now the full expression of all that I was from the very beginning. And Jesus served the purpose, but Jesus was for 33 and a half years. Jesus was for 33 and a half years. Christ is forever. Christ was forever. From before time began into the circle of time immemorial, Christ always is and Christ always will be. So, when the question is asked to you, what shall we do with this Jesus who is called Christ? Make sure you don't say, crucify him. So one, one last statement, I wrote this down tonight. It was, it was going through my head when I left the house and I forgot to write it down, but I've done it here. When you see the universal Christ in anything, you will feel him in everything. Once you see the universal Christ in anything, you will feel him in everything. Because we've then become fully one. Remember Jesus said, we're one. And that's where he always wanted us to be so that we can fulfill the purpose because we may have been born whatever, but what we become is what we become in Christ. So we're moving beyond Jesus and into the Christ. So I'm going to leave it there for tonight. I think, I think I've said enough to, uh, to lay it down. And, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll pick this up a little bit more probably next week and just expand some of that thinking, expand our hearts and expand our minds. So don't crucify the Christ, right? Embrace the Christ. Let's come across. Let's be, as we said many years ago, I didn't even fully understand what we're talking about. We need to be the 42nd generation people. That's the last and only generation that were ever supposed to exist in the context of God's universal manifestation in the world. And he's calling us to move over and be part of that. So bless you. Appreciate you being here, and I hope that's helped to give you a little understanding at least. And we're done, so you can have a chat and go whatever, but we bless you. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.